All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel is in the Old Testament behind Isaiah and Jeremiah. You keep turning to the right, close to the New Testament, the book of Daniel, 12 chapters. Um, we're going to look at this over the next four weeks. We're going to cover this book um, in it. Many of you know some of the stories that you see in this book, whether it's a guy getting thrown to the lions or three of his boys getting thrown into a furnace or a dream that he interprets. But I want us to understand the text. God has a message for us from this book, and I think it's right on time. I was tempted not to share this with you because I don't want you to think that my wife and I are nerds. But about a year ago, a year and a half ago, we were going, flipping through Netflix, looking for something to watch. And on there, it was some of the great phenomenons that happen in nature. Some of the great phenomenons that happen in nature. And on that is the great migration, the great salmon run. Now, you guys are not thinking, ooh, this is interesting, are you? Well, somehow we clicked on this thing and we started watching and it got more and more interesting as we heard from. So this is, I'm going to give you just the, the Reader's Digest version and you can decide whether you want to watch it or not. Salmon are born in a riverbed, freshwater. They swim all the way to the Pacific Ocean, live their entire adult lives in the Pacific Ocean, and then when they're ready to lay eggs, they swim back to where they were born, lay eggs, and then they die. And it happens every year. Hundreds of thousands of fish swim against the current, going upstream to go back to where they were born, to lay eggs so they can die. And I just want you to think of some of the things that they had to overcome. Do you know they could jump 12 feet out of the water? They have to cover waterfalls going upstream. They have to jump the water to keep swimming to where they are from. Bears know this. They are waiting on them to swim upstream. And they catch them out of the air. They have a nice little snack. They have to worry about eagles coming and, and catching them. They've got wolves. They've got all sorts of predators. And then the other problem is as you swim upstream, they're not eating on this salmon run that takes a, a while to get hundreds of miles to where they were born. Um, if they make it, they lay the eggs, they die of exhaustion, and they always go back home for one purpose, to lay eggs. Now, why is that important? This is what I want us to think about. They are so focused on their purpose, they don't care about the risks. They keep moving forward. In the same way, what we see with Daniel is even though his world is collapsing, he is so focused on his God that he remains faithful through the chaos. Now, when I'm looking at Daniel, what I see for you and for me, there's a lot of things that the world will throw our way that will pull you from God. And what I want us to see is that God is worth being faithful to no matter what comes our way. So we can learn something simple from the great salmon run. As just as they are focused, getting back home to lay eggs, even though it costs them their lives, we should be just as focused to be faithful to God no matter what stands in our way. I want us to have that focus. 
And so when we come to the book of Daniel, what you see are two purposes in the first chapter. Number one is that God is in control. God is working all things according to his perfect plan. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. His plan is not your plan. It's not your plan to have you be happy and wealthy and wise. That's not his plan. His plan is for his glory, and he's working it out to perfection. And Daniel makes it clear on what he is doing. And I'll share with you in just a little bit what's happening to Daniel and his people. Because it doesn't seem like God's in control in this chapter. But Daniel reminds us again and again and again, he is. And so that's for one. And here's the deal. There's a lot of people in the room that need to be comforted by the knowledge of knowing that God is in control. Because some of you are going through some crazy things. And if you live life long enough, you're going to ask the question of where is God? And what Daniel reminds us and shows us is that we can find comfort in knowing that God is in control. So that's one part. That's the one main passage Daniel's trying to communicate. But then he sneaks in another one. And it's when we see that God is in control, working all things to perfection, it is easier for us to remain faithful even when it doesn't make sense. Daniel is in a place where he could compromise easily, and yet he resolves to set his face to follow God. So, for everybody in the room, I think we're in one of two camps. We either need to be comforted by knowing that God is in control, or we're here and we are called to faithfulness in every area of our lives. And when we see the bigness and greatness of God, it is easier to line our lives up faithfully to the God that we serve. All right, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to do what only God can do in our lives and in our hearts. All right, let's pray and then we'll get to work. Father, I thank you for this morning. I pray that we know that we're not here by accident. You have a word for us, me included. So, Father, I pray you open up our hearts and our minds, help us see what you have for us. Transform us from the inside out. I pray that we see the greatness and glory of Christ. Pray that we run to him. Pray that we're faithful in every area of our lives. I pray that we see that you are at work in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so let's get to work. We're going to read chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, we're starting with Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. All right, so just so you know, the good guys in this passage would be those living in Judah. Under King Jehoiakim. Now, he's a wicked king and the people are rebelling against God. But in the Old Testament, the people of God is Israel and Judah. And what you see is we're going to call Nebuchadnezzar from here on out King Nebo. Nebo comes to town. He's like, hey, we're going to go ahead and expand our kingdom. These guys don't have a strong military. We like their property. We're going to take it. All right, let's do this. And he takes over, besieges the land. Now, what do you think God will do? Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand some of the vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar. Now, real quick, Shinar, that doesn't mean anything to you, does it? I've never been to the city of Shinar, but you want to know where we see that in the Bible? It's the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. 
Remember, they get to this plane and they look, hey, guys, I got an idea. Let's build this tower up into the heavens. We'll do whatever we want to. We don't care what God has called us to do. We're going to do what we want to do. And they set up, start building, and then God confuses their language and scatters them to all over the planet. Because that's what he called them to do. This is a place where people rebel against God. And that's exactly where Daniel is going. It's not a good time in Daniel's life. Where is God in this chapter? Skip on down to verse 3. Then the king commanded Asphanes, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed in knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, what we don't see in this text and what we don't know is the names in Israel stood for something. God was with me. God is on my side. And what happens is they get names offering to the Babylonian gods. And what you see with King Nebuchadnezzar, what he's going to do is he's going to take this people and say, hey, forget your culture and your customs. You're coming to Babylonian and you're going to be Babylonians. Forget what you used to eat. This is what you're eating. Forget how you used to speak. This is the language you're speaking now. Forget what you used to wear. This is what you're wearing now. Forget the customs you used to practice. You're in a new city now. And so not only did the king come and conquer his country, he is tearing them up individually saying you're going to assimilate to Babylon. And this is how we see Daniel and his boys. And think about it. They're your age, not my age. I'm too old. They don't care about me. They're leaving me back. They're taking you guys. You guys are young and have something to offer. And they say, you're going to learn a new language, do a new thing. Forget your God. You're coming with us. That's a scary place to be. And what people are asking as they read this text is, where is God? So let's keep reading. How do you think Daniel's going to respond? What you're going to see in this book is Daniel is the dude. Daniel is the dude. Check this out. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. He's like, uh, I'm not doing that. So here you have, you have a 17-year-old under the most powerful person on the planet, King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I'm not doing what you say. That takes some guts. That's swimming against current. That's standing up against culture. It says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to defile myself. Verse 9, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. You want to know why that's important? If God had not moved, Daniel would have been killed. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the use you of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. He's saying, hey, if I don't give you what he commanded, everybody's going to know it because you're going to be too skinny, you're going to look malnourished, and I'm going to pay the consequences. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then... Let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. I love this. So here, Daniel is convinced that his faithfulness 
will be rewarded with blessing. It is better to obey God than bow down to a foreign king. That's what he's showing us. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance, fatter in flesh than all the use of the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they drank and gave them vegetables. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know how popular Daniel was with his boys at this point. Right? Do you guys see what just happened? They were eating the best food available, the most tasty food. They had wine to drink. And now, because of Daniel, they're stuck on vegetables and water, not for a few days, for three years. Daniel might not have been a very popular dude back home. But man, he's doing what's right. So let's see what happens. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> Can you imagine this? Our country's taken over, and a couple of these high schoolers are taken before the commanding officer, the most powerful person on the planet. God has so arranged for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be there in this position. God's at work. And the king spoke with them, and among them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's an interesting comment to end chapter 1. You want to know why that's interesting? You see King Cyrus? Daniel outlasts the Babylonian Empire. So Daniel's taken as a high schooler. And by the time King Cyrus comes around, he's in his 80s. So chapter 1 covers about 70 years. And what we see is Daniel is faithful, faithful, faithful. God preserves him. And Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom is gone. You see, God is at work here. And so I want us to get to the, the point of the text. Number one, I want us to recognize that God is in control, that he is working his plan to perfection. Now, this is very, very important because there's a lot of times in your life and in my life where it doesn't seem like God is in control. Think about Daniel. If anybody could ask God, where are you? It probably is Daniel. Here he is, back home, he's faithful, serving God, and all of a sudden the Babylonians show up and start attacking the city. I almost can guarantee you Daniel's praying for his people. God help us prevail over this Babylonian empire. Doesn't happen. Not only do they lose the battle, he's taken into captivity. Hundreds of miles he's walking, step after agonizing step. His family is left behind. He is forced to learn a culture he doesn't want to learn, a language he doesn't speak, and eat food that he doesn't want to eat. Daniel, at any point in time, could have asked, where is God? But what does he do? He resolves to be faithful because he knows his God can make the trip with him. You see, there's two ways to view God. Some people view God like he created the earth, set it in motion, and then he's hands off. He's saying, good luck. You guys figure it out. Some people think that way. Daniel's not one of those dudes. He knows that God created him for a purpose and that God is working his plan to perfection. And it includes working for his good, Daniel's good, and for God's glory. And that's a promise you and I have. 
We know for those in Christ, God is working for our good and His glory. So if something happens in our life, it's not for our ruin, it's for our good and for His glory. So that while Daniel is walking hundreds of miles away from his homeland, he can trust that God is in control, which enables his faithfulness that you see in this chapter. This is very, very important for us to understand. God is in control. And you guys can see this two ways to look at history. You see this in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar shows up to take over the city. Nebo thinks he's in control. Things are going well with him and his military. Kingdom's expanding. Everything's good. He thinks he's the one that's victorious. But what does Daniel tell us in verse 2? tells us that he gave Jehoiakim and Judah to Nebo. And then later on in Daniel chapter 9, we see why. God's people aren't worshiping God. They're worshiping other gods. They have forgotten God. And God again and again and again is calling his people back to him. Come back, come back, come back, come back. And they're not hearing it. They're saying, God, forget you. We'll do whatever we want to. We'll treat people however we want to. There's injustice. There's people robbing people over the temple. It's just a crazy time to be in Judah. And so God says, you know what? Judgment's coming. If you do not turn, judgment's coming. If you do not turn, judgment's coming. And he uses Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment. And it's an amazing thing that happens. While in exile, the people return to God. It's a painful reminder that our sin has consequences. And God is calling us, hey, come back to me. Come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And he loves us too much to do whatever we want. And you can trust the discipline of the Lord. Now, that's not fun. But I would rather be disciplined by God and return to him than ignored by God and forgotten. So that's what we see here. And you also see the triumph of God. How does he triumph in chapter 1? Do you guys notice that? The word gave is mentioned three times. God gave Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Daniel favor in the sight of the chief eunuch. And God gave these young men wisdom and understanding. It's an amazing thing to see the triumph of God. Nebuchadnezzar is just a puppet in the plan for God's purposes. Now, to you and me, Nebo's a scary dude. He can bring his military in, take us in, captive, could kill us, whatever. But when you see that, nope, God's just using him for his own glory, that gives us comfort. That's how Daniel's able to walk and be faithful. So, my question to you is, do you understand God is faithful? You're not here by accident. You're not working where you work by accident. You don't live in the neighborhood that you live by accident. Your life experiences are not by accident. God is working and drawing people to himself. He has a plan and it is a perfect plan beyond all of our wisdom. But sometimes it's a scary thing when you and myself are not in control. Uh, my wife and I, we take a trip to visit her grandparents and they lived in Asheville, North Carolina. And so it, it's a few hour road trip and we're going on down the highway. And my goal is always to beat the estimated time of arrival. Right. And so we're flying through Lexington. We get through Lexington in record time. This is when I have my Honda Accord so I could go 80 and it not shake like it was going to fall apart like my truck does now. We're moving. I'm happy. We're, things are going well. And then all of a sudden we get to Richmond, Kentucky and snow flurries start to come down. 
So I just view it as a challenge, right? Drive by faith. And so we start going, and all of a sudden it starts to get a little thicker, and, a little th- and boom, before I know it, the truck that was setting a good pace for us in front of us taps his brakes and goes to the left and then right back in front of me to the right off the road. And at that point in time, I'm thinking, you know what, I probably should slow down. So as I tap on the brakes, I just start doing the circle, 360. Now, donuts are cool in a parking lot, but when you're going about 70, 75 on a highway, it's not very cool. And I remember spinning, and I'm looking, I see the truck, whew, we missed it. But then I'm turning, I'm going backwards on the highway, and there's a Jeep behind us. I'm thinking, oh, this is how it's going to end. This is how it's going to end. We kept doing 360s, and then wind up in the ditch on the left of the highway. Right? So we're back in there, we're up, and here comes this Jeep, and shoom, made it past us barely. Truck's off the road, Jeep's now off the road, we're in the ditch. And I'm thinking, well, this is not how I intended it to be. My hands are clutched onto the steering wheel. I can't talk to Julianne. I'm so scared. My foot is pulsing. Right? You can feel the blood flow. My heart's racing. I'm hoping I'm not having a heart attack. I'm like, we just got to get out of here, right? Because the traffic's still coming. So finally we get a spot. And I'm thinking, please get out of this ditch. And I get out and, and you can feel the, the car pushing with my foot because I can't keep a steady pace. And we finally get up out of the ditch and we get to the exit, get to a parking lot. Whew. And then just a couple miles down the road, nothing but sunshine. Make the rest of the trip perfectly fine. But it's a scary thing when you realize you're not in control. Here's the crazy part. We're never in control. It's a false sense of security. You're not in control of the breath you just took. You're not in control of the health issues that are coming down the way. You're not in control of the circumstances that are about to happen. But you know who is. And I'm so glad He is in control and not myself. And so the challenge is to remember, to recognize God is in control and find comfort in that. And so just some from personal examples, God is in control when my car is spinning out of control. God was in control when my middle daughter, instead of taking her first breath of air, took a gulp of fluids and is turning purple. I'm not in control of that situation, but I trust God. So I call out to him. God is in control in seasons of plenty. So I've had good jobs and I've had the opportunity and blessings to own my own house. But then I also had the opportunity not to have a job and not to have a house and mouths to feed. That's a scary thing. But in both, God has been faithful and had a plan and is working it out to perfection. And so I want you to remember God is in control. And that should bring comfort. All right. Number two, because God is in control, let us resolve to be faithful to God. Resolve to be faithful to God. You see this in Daniel. Um, he, He paints the picture of, all right, I'm going into exile. Bad things are going to happen. But he doesn't let this go. You see this with verse 8. But Daniel resolved. I love that. He's got a little gumption. He hasn't forgotten God. His faith is still strong. And so I want to see, he resolves to be faithful in any and every circumstance. No matter what the king is assigning. He could have said, you know what, I'd love to eat my dietary regulation food, but the king said I got to do this. And so, oh well, we'll just go with the flow. 
But he doesn't. Because he says, you know what? Being faithful to the eternal God is more important than bowing down to a temporary king. Now, you and I don't serve a king. But we have a culture that demands things from you and from me. We have a culture that would say it is politically incorrect to say Jesus is the only way to the Father. Right? That's narrow-minded. You're leaving out this group of people and this group of people and this group of people. The only problem is there's only one person that came to this planet that can pay for my sin. It's not Confucius. It's not Buddha. It's no other religion. It's no other church. His name is Jesus. And so I don't care about political, being politically correct if I have the truth. But the world's saying you can't do that. So you have to decide will you be faithful to God and the call he has on your life or to what the world expects. The king said you're going to eat this food. Daniel says now I'm resolving to be faithful to God. But then secondly, be faithful no matter what the king's assigned. Be faithful no matter how far away from home you are. And just so you know, you guys are very far away from home. You're further than Daniel is right now. And he's 900 miles away. He's in Babylon. His home is in Judah. Where's our home? Don't say Covington. Heaven. Right? Paul tells us our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior. Jesus is coming for His people. Don't get too comfortable here. We had this slogan on our football team, no place I'd rather be than the... Oh my gosh, that's pitiful, guys. No place I'd rather be than the COV. Now, on an earthly perspective, that's true. I'd love being in this city. I love being about this people. But, if I was being honest, if you ask me no place I'd rather be, it ain't here. It's not here. It's not working at Holmes High School. It's not worrying about school and college and all the other stuff that this world has to offer. Man, there's no other place I'd rather be than in the kingdom with the king. And his name is Jesus. So, no matter how far away from home we are, which is far, I want to be faithful because I know the king's returning. And I'll be found faithful. Then, number two, no matter how you can rationalize unfaithfulness. Now, this is again and again, again and again, again and again, something we have to fight. It's easy to rationalize sin. It's easy to rationalize unfaithfulness. So Daniel could have said, you know what, there's nothing I can do. I'm not in charge here. God put me in this situation anyways. He can rationalize however he wants to, but what does he do? He resolves to be faithful. You can rationalize cheating on a test any way you want to. Resolve to be faithful. We can rationalize being unfaithful in our marriages any way we want to, but we should resolve to be faithful. We can rationalize using our money for our purposes, but we should resolve to be faithful. And so in every in any circumstance we find ourselves in, let us resolve to be faithful. And with this group of people, here's the awesome part. We have young, we have old, we have people who have retired, people that haven't even started working yet. There should be all sorts of pictures of faithfulness in this sanctuary. In any circumstance, let us be faithful. And then, let us resolve to be faithful even if it's costly. Daniel's life is on the line. He knows what it will cost him. Now, you and I, for right now, our faithfulness is not very costly. It might cost you popularity. It might cost you comfort. But it's not super costly. But let us be faithful now so that when it becomes costly, it's just another day in our lives. 
We were faithful now, we will be faithful later, even if it's at great cost. Which leads us to the third thing, resolve to be faithful in the small things. Resolve to be faithful in the small things. The only way to be faithful in the big things is to be faithful in the small things. Now, this is my point. Food that he ate, not a huge deal. Not a huge deal to you and to me. But to him, he said, this would defile me before God. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And he started here, young, something that would pay off 70 years down the road when he's in his 80s. Because there's another king that said, hey, if you keep bowing down and praying to God, we're going to throw you to the lions. It's not going to go well for you. And one way that Daniel and his boys, who survived the furnace, was able to stand up and tell the king his dream, even though it risked him his life, and was able to be faithful and praying, even though it cost him, could have cost him his life in the lion's den, is because he was faithful in the small things. So that when the big things came, he was ready. You guys remember the story of David, right? Everybody knows about David and Goliath. Takes a sling, a rock, puts it through his head. Not a big deal. That's a huge victory. It's one of the greatest victories of the Old Testament. You know that's not David's first victory? You want to know he was faithful before that in the small stuff? He kept his father's sheep. Nobody liked that job. Nobody wanted that job. It was looked down upon. As a matter of fact, when Samuel came to anoint the king of one of the sons of Jesse, David didn't even get invited because he was keeping the sheep. He was an outcast. And yet, it's funny, he gets to Saul and he's like, hey man, I'll go take care of this giant. And Saul's like, hey, you don't have any armor. You don't know any karate. You're not going to go face Goliath. He goes, hey, what you don't understand is I've been training for this my whole life. I was out keeping my father's sheep and there was a bear and a lion. I took a rock, take a sling, bam, whooped him. What's up now? I got the rocks, I got the sling, let me go. And Saul lets him go. Because he was faithful in the small things, he was ready to be faithful in the big things. This is the same is true for you. But the opposite is also true, and David is also our example. You know, David took too many wives. Do you know David was out on the balcony when he should have been at battle? You know, David was staring at another lady on another balcony when he should have been fighting. You see, unfaithfulness in the little things led to unfaithfulness in the big things. So make no mistake, you're setting patterns in your life right now. For example, showing up at church. Is it important to show up here Sunday in and Sunday out? It's vitally important. You see, I think sometimes we have a mixed uh, idea of what church is. This is a family, and we should be praying for, encouraging, serving one another. We desperately need each other. We should be pulling and pushing people to follow Christ all over the city. We should be encouraging each other here. Because like Daniel... We're in a far away land striving to be faithful. We desperately need each other. We should worship together and then serve one another. But I also know 11 o'clock comes early for some people. Now today it was noon, right? We got an extra hour. But stay up late Saturday and it's easy to say, you know what, I'm not coming. This is the story of my dad. Dad used to come to church every Sunday. It was a duty. I think he did it because he was afraid of mom. So he'd come and come and come. But then he switched jobs from banking to cutting grass. And you know, the grass doesn't stop on Sundays. And God blessed his company and things were going well. And he had three sons. They got to do some labor. Um, and there are no off days when you're working with your dad. And so things were booming. We were getting accounts right and left. 
And then he rationalized not showing up on Sundays because he had to work. And it was true. I mean, things were crazy. He could have cut back. We didn't desperately need the money. But then he got used to not coming on Sundays through the summer. Then he started to take off in the winter. And then Easter and Christmas came along and he's out of the routine. And that's just church attendance. Church attendance doesn't save you. We understand that. But you're developing patterns of faithfulness or unfaithfulness. And I want us to be faithful in the small things so that when the big things come, it's just another day in our lives of faithfulness. All right? Last thing. Jonathan Edwards was an old dude. He's long since dead, but he came up with 70 resolutions as an 18-year-old. 17 resolutions as an 18-year-old. And I like these. Um, He talked about how I will live for God. And then the second resolution, if no one else does, I still will. And and you can look these up, but I think this is a good thing to do. And and I want to to read the the first part because what I don't want to see is, hey, I need to do better. I want to pull myself up and work harder to do. That's not what I'm talking about. And so I think he does good framing this. He goes, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. Right? That's called what? Starts with a G, ends in race. Grace. Right? God is helping me live this out. You see Daniel's faithfulness and you see God's grace. God gave him favor with the eunuch so he could keep his dietary plan on par. And then God gave him wisdom so he can be in the right spot. So you see God's grace and the resolve to be faithful working together. And so it's God's grace. And he goes on to say, I humbly entreat him. I beg him for his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will. For Christ's sake, remember to read these resolutions once a week. And so he wrote down these 70 things and he would read them once a week. And here are just some of them. Remember that I will do whatsoever I think to be most for the glory of God. That's an awesome resolution to have. I'm going to live to the glory of God. Whatever is to His glory, I'm going to do that. That's some resolve to have. Another one, I resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Man, if our young guys can get this at an early age, it will transform the trajectory of their lives. There are no wasted days. I'm not talking about sports. I'm not talking about academics. I'm talking about faithfulness to God. If I will live day in and day out, as long as I live with all my might for the glory of God, that will be a radical different life 80 years down the road. That's a great resolve to have. I resolve that I will live so as I wish I would have lived when I come to die. That's how you number your days. When I'm on my deathbed, I don't want to look back and say, man, I wish I would have poured more into my daughters. I wish I would have preached better. I'm going to say, no, I'm going to live now how I hope I live when I'm facing the Lord. So Jonathan Edwards had 70 resolutions. Daniel had one. And he resolved to be faithful to his God. That's a good place to start. And so there's three ways to respond to this text from Daniel. There's three ways to respond. One, maybe you're here and your world is chaos right now. Things are happening and you're wondering what in the world is going on. This is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to find your comfort and your strength and knowing that God is in control and has a plan for your life. And I understand it's hard. Daniel understands it's hard. But God is in control and his plan is perfect. And he will lead you home.
And so maybe today you need to find comfort. Or another group, you're living faithful to God in some areas of your life, but not others. Maybe you need to resolve to be faithful to God today. And I don't know what area that is. I know I've got my own things I'm resolving to do so that God is glorified. I know all of us in the room are dealing with sin that we need to put to death and we need to resolve to be faithful in every area of our life. And so just as one of many, let us as a church resolve to be faithful to God. And then there's another group, and I want to be careful with this, um, because just because you show up in this building doesn't mean you're one of God's people. You see, God always triumphs through giving. And one of the most popular verses in the world is John 3.16. It says, God so loved the world that He gave. Gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. And so maybe today you're here and you're like, man, this is a lot. God is in control. Okay, i got to be faithful. Okay, what does that look like? I don't even know what God's asking me to do. The first thing God asks you to do is to trust in His Son, whom He gave so that you might have life in His name. Your sins can be forgiven. And not just forgiven, wiped away. Right? Before God, you will be as righteous as Jesus. By the way, is perfect. Why? Because Jesus paid for your sin on the cross. That's what he was doing on the cross, dying. He had no sin to pay for of his own. He took your sin and my sin, paid for it so that I can stand before God, totally righteous, redeemed, saved forever. So maybe today you need to turn to Jesus. So right now I'm going to pray, and then as I pray, wherever you are, however you need to respond, do work with the Lord. He hears you when you pray. If you need to call on Jesus to save you, call on Jesus to save you. If you need to resolve to be faithful in an area of your life, call on Him, ask Him to help you, pour out grace in your life, resolve to be faithful to God in that area. If you need to be comforted in whatever chaos is going on in your life, ask God to comfort you and help you understand how big His plan is for your life. So let's do work. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the message of Daniel. Father, we are desperate people. Father, forgive us when we think we are in control. Help us understand that you are in control and working all things together for our good and your glory. So, Father, help me and help us understand and find comfort in that truth. Father, I ask for grace so we can run the race with faithfulness. Pray in every area of our lives we may be found faithful. And then, Father, thank you for giving your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.